Hello and welcome to Carbon Removal Newsroom. I'm Ross Kenyon. I'm the lead strategist at the Nori Carbon Removal Marketplace. Today I have with me Patricia Silva, co-founder and non-executive director of the Carbon Removal Center in the UK. Hi, Patricia. Hi, Ross. Glad to be here. I'm happy to have you. Uh, there is so much happening in the UK. I keep seeing things pop up. I've been looking for reasons to have the Carbon Removal Center onto the show, and uh, I'm pleased we found a reason to do it. So Great. maybe a good place to start is, what is the Carbon Removal Center? Great, good question. So I can tell you a bit of the story and how it all started maybe. Um, so start with me and a few other folks um, in the UK um, that uh, basically were connected to Noah Deitch from Carbon 180. Actually, I did my MBA uh, with him. And Noah Deitch eventually was speaking to us and mutual friends. And he was asking like, when would you in the UK and Europe uh, create a version of Carbon 180? Um, so as we realized that no one was doing it at the time and decided to move forward with that. So basically the Carbon Removal Center, which we usually call CRC, uh, it's a nonprofit that's working on bridging the gap uh, in the carbon remo removal landscape. So we address uh, four main barriers, which are communications and awareness, uh, innovation and diffusion of the wide range of techniques. The third is advancing policy and commercial incentives. That very much needs to be done. And the fourth is the addressing the lack of a political constituency, uh, which speaks on behalf of the, the carbon removal sector in an engaging and unifying way. So we've been doing a few projects already. Uh, we were registered last year, we created last year, but we've already worked on a few projects. I can just give you one or two examples, such as we've been developing workshops with hard to decarbonize industries, and that was before COVID. <laughs> um, we're also creating a guide for businesses that want to engage with carbon removal. And we're also collaborating with other projects in, with other organizations in UK and uh, as well as Europe that are interested in um, working together to move this uh, the carbon removal agenda. So just a shout out if there's any organization out there listening to this episode and wanting to join efforts in the carbon removal space, please do reach out. <laughs> That's great. I'm happy that the UK um, has you and your colleagues working on this. Maybe you could help me walk through understanding what's happening in the UK with carbon removal. Yes, sure. We, we've been seeing some momentum from the government and some uh, big uh, academic universities that are basically advancing that in terms of uh, creating the discussion around carbon removal. And, and perhaps you could start, uh, I could start with speaking about the, the Oxford principles. Mm, yeah, I which, saw this. So basically, these academics from Oxford University um, launched a standard for carbon offsetting last month. And basically, there's nothing necessarily new in that report, but um, it's now in the shape of formal principles around carbon offsetting. So um, Oxford just gives the validation on this topic, and basically, it recognizes that um, offsetting is not a perfect system, uh, but they are hugely important and need to be improved. So these principles, there, which are four, which I'm going to talk about, um, help to develop clarity around what constitutes a credible net zero aligned offsetting. So just focusing on the, just naming the four principles now, the first one is around prioritizing cutting emissions before anything else. So we already know that, uh, but eventually do the best offsetting you can, demonstrating environmental integrity, uh, such as ensuring they're additional, 
and also be transparent on the purchase offsets, for instance, disclosing your accounting practices. So that's the first one. The second is just go along the climate science and purchase carbon removal offsets to reach those Paris Agreement goals. The third one focuses around prioritizing long-lived reliable storage. And the last one is focused on supporting the development of a market for net zero aligned offsets. So I'd be happy to discuss this a bit further, um, starting in whatever one you would like. To. Yeah, we can, we can start at the, the top, although it sounds like numbers two through four may be a bit more pertinent to our audience. So, well, on the first one, I think I, it's, it's very basic, uh, as mentioned, like we, on the climate maps, you need to basically cut out emissions that you're still emitting to the atmosphere. And the, the second part is the removal part. So, um, and not to, we should definitely not discard that last part. Mm. And actually that's uh, an issue that we have in UK and probably in other nations in terms of, we want to achieve net zero goals by 2050, uh, but there's no direct or straightforward or guidelines on how to do that. So currently actually, um, one organization can get to net zero uh, with just full uh, offsetting uh, their emissions. So mm -hmm. there's no minimum level of ambition for corporate carbon reduction. Um, so basically, um, I think there's a gap uh, in the guidelines and the policies in the UK and probably with many other nations. So um, I think Oxford is very much adamant that as we move forward, and I'm speaking about UK, but actually these principles can be applied anywhere in the world and for different type of organizations, such as corporates, financial institutions, any government. So um, it's very good that they're clearing, um, clarifying the needs to prioritize cutting emissions. So that's all I have to say on the first one. I don't know if you want to add something here. I, I do just a, a quick clarifying question. You're saying that the framework currently for um, British net zero policy, being able to call yourself a net zero organization, you can get there 100% with offsets without decarbonizing at all. But these new Oxford principles are saying that uh, that is no longer the case. There's only a certain amount of offsetting that uh, should really be tolerated to call yourself truly net zero. Is that okay? Yes, they're basically say, stating what offsetting should mean and why we should be and how we should be do, going about it. It's not that the UK government has accepted and implemented those principles, but they should as any other government and any other organization. So they're ve being very clear on how to get to the real net zero, which is actually a moment uh, in time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So basically, there's no formal separation of negative emissions targets and the accounting for emissions reductions. Okay, that sounds good. How about this uh, second principle? Well, the second principle is really straightforward. Uh, when you purchase uh, offsets, you should be prioritizing carbon removal offsets. So as you know, you have carbon offsets, which can mean, uh, the, for instance, like purchasing renewable energy, um, and that will only reduce the emissions that are put out there in the atmosphere. It doesn't re remove the emissions that are out, the, the the carbon that is already out there. So without that, we with that you're just focusing on the first part of reducing emissions. You're not focused on what you need to do extra to get to that real net zero. So I think that's very straightforward. 
whenever you can purchase carbon removal offsets. What is the reasoning for prioritizing one over the other? So I think that the, um, the importance of this uh, second principle is uh, the point where people and organizations and, and corporations are very much focused on reducing emissions because that's an easy part. Um, but when you focus on, for instance, hard to decarbonize industries, they will always be emitting, uh, well, more than other uh, type of industries. So um, they will never get to real net zero if they don't focus on offsets that remove the emissions that they've been responsible for. So uh, that's a big part. Okay, how about uh, the third? Yeah, the third is, uh, it's an interesting one because it focuses on prioritizing long-lived reliable storage. And this is something where sometimes you see um, two different teams playing for carbon removal, the nature-based solution fans and the more engineering techie solutions fans. And sometimes it can be kind of a, not fight, but uh, less amicable dispute, dispute around what's more important uh, and what uh, has better benefits. So for me on this, uh, I think it's very clear in terms of there's a need to prioritize long-lived storage. Why? Because um, they will be permanently, the, the, this carbon will be permanently sequestered for hundreds of years. And that usually focus, uh, to get to that, usually you focus on more engineered techie solutions where we store that carbon uh, in underground geological storage or mineralize it uh, or what have you. Um, this looks like it's deprioritizing uh, nature-based solutions, which as you know, most of them have a, a short, more short-lived storage, for instance, like decades, a few decades, for instance, like from trees and, and, and what have you. Um, I definitely believe that both uh, and hybrid solutions are needed uh, because they have different, uh, let's say, co-benefits. So for instance, if you're focused on the more short-lived solutions, nature-based, planting trees, afforestation, reforestation, uh, you're increasing other, you're getting other benefits such as increase of biodiversity and how good that is to the soil and water streams and everything else. So there's a lot of co-benefits that come from that, uh, from applying those um, solutions that are more nature-based, less long-lived. Um, you can have the benefits also tomorrow, let's say. Uh, if you focus on engineer long-lived storage um, solutions, they are not yet scalable and we're a bit far from that. So um, the goal of them highlighting this here in the, this third principle is because we need to start focusing on the now to do that deployment, research, development on the current technologies to become cheaper and more scalable, as well as uh, some development or new te technologies that are, for instance, now in the valley of death. So uh, we definitely need to focus on all of them, uh, but definitely prioritize the ones that can give a long-lived storage. And I definitely believe that if you can focus on nature-based solutions, but make them more long-lived in terms of storage, that's perfect. That would be the best of both worlds. <laughs> yeah, your framing of this is correct to me in that this has been one of the most fractious issues that I've seen for people who care about carbon removal is this fight over permanence and, and what constitutes it 
and how sure are we about various uh, suggestions of permanence across methodologies. Um, so we'll have to see. I certainly am excited about all of it. And I think um, focusing on permanence is uh, a very interesting way to go. And I imagine it's probably, well, the UK isn't super big in terms of landmass. So uh, I don't know how much possibilities there are for uh, forestry and soil relative to someplace like the United States. My, uh, but, you know, there's oh, quite a large uh, maritime oil industry out of Aberdeen, and you could probably uh, do a fair amount of uh, work in the North Sea sequestering uh, CO2. And um, I'm not sure if that influences at all Oxford's principles. Maybe just they value permanence above all else, no matter what. Um, but I'm just spitballing. Yeah. Is that is that correct or am I just guessing? <laughs> yeah, actually the Oxford principles are universal. Like this is for any organization anywhere in the world to apply it. Like they're not just focused in the UK. This is uh, mm. for me that you can apply it anywhere. Um, yeah, it just makes sense. Um, I don't know by heart, but yeah, there I've read some studies about the area that it can use for nature-based solutions in UK. So studies have been made, uh, but I cannot tell you at this moment if there uh, enough uh, there's enough land area and natural carbon sinks in UK uh, to be able to uh, remove all the carbon that uh, we we need. Uh, but to be honest, the UK is actually um, let's say how can I say that. Um, um, it's a cradle for the industrial revolution. So we, we shifted the carbon cycle the other way. So now we should be play a role in terms of uh, removing the carbon that we emitted, but go beyond that. So net zero, it's just a, a moment in time. We have to go beyond that. So the UK, I believe it would be a responsible um, nation if they would go beyond net zero and remove other emissions that they've been uh, pollute that they've been putting in the atmosphere for years and years and centuries in this case. So with that, you can only do that if you apply um, techie, more techie and engineer solutions and sequester the carbon in geological sinks, in my opinion. Fair enough. Yeah. I had to think some more about that. I guess, you know, uh, East Anglia drained the fens. You can't just flood the fens and get peat bogs again. They're just sort of gone. Uh, so I don't know what you do about that. I guess you move on to uh, geological, industrial, uh, technological solutions perhaps instead. Um, and especially because you mentioned uh, correctly, we have in the North Sea a lot of good geological storage that we can use um, to, yeah, to develop these storage, uh, geological storage projects. For, so we're well located for that. Well, fair enough. Okay, that sounds good. Um, uh, don't need to uh, relitigate this classic fight because it comes up seemingly all the time. And I try to be neutral, Patricia. <laughs> I try to say, let's, let's just, we need all of it. Let's just see what happens. Exactly. Right. We need a portfolio of solutions. You have different pros and cons of each of them, and that's normal. So let, <laughs> let's, let's be, be all cheerful for, for all the solutions that are out there. And the, the sooner we develop them and scale them, the better. I only get defensive or maybe offensive about it when people are too strongly partisan of one over the other. Like if you get earth mamas and papas in a room and they all want to talk about ecological sequestration and how the tech is uh, bad or not connected with nature. I'm like, we, we definitely need that. But then when I talk about people who uh, maybe uh, 
not overstate, but maybe make too big of a deal of the permanence issue for industrial methodologies. So like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll I, I sort of want to like wait and see a little bit more how that plays out and it is still expensive and it'll come down. But, uh, um, I always want to just, um, take the temperature down a few, a few degrees whenever I see these. Um, <laughs> and then sometimes people put me in a corner where I'm like, no, no, we need it. And, uh, you're overstating your case and I'm going to sit in the, the chair of complexity, which allows me to cast judgment on everyone for their strong opinions without <laughs> just say, I need position. to go to the bathroom and just disappear from the room. <laughs> yeah. Or that too. Yeah. Uh, okay. None of this is news to a listener though. So we could probably just move on. Uh, and then we have, was it one final principle here? Yes. Uh, the, the one that's focused on supporting the development of a, a market for net zero aligned offsets. And I think this is very much needed actually. Uh, so on this, they, they, they high level, high level mentioned the creation of long-term agreements which really helped developing a steady cash flow to the risk the projects and advanced solutions, especially if you're talking about more techie solutions, they are very expensive. So they needed some kind of revenue and shortness on the cash flow uh, to be able to be deploying and, 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 and improving the efficiency of their technology. So uh, if you have that certainty, you, you can deploy more resources to these solutions. Uh, another item they, they mentioned is developing sector-specific alliances to help each other. So we're all in this together. So if the same industry players are collaborating among themselves to get uh, to, to remove all goals, for instance, let's say the, the steel industry, if they're all collaborating among themselves, uh, we can get there faster in this hard to decarbonize industries more specifically. And actually, this touches a bit of the um, focus of, of an article I wrote about two weeks ago, which is published in the Carbon Removal Center website, uh, which talks a bit about this market-based approach, uh, how much that is needed to develop the ecosystem. So uh, it's good that I also mentioned that here. Um, good. And just to clarify, when we were talking about creating a market or market-based approaches, you, you specified some degree of alliances, but is it also saying that there needs to be something like a uh, either voluntary or compliance market or markets, uh, both approaches? Is that a part of this too? Uh, well, uh, actually, I'm not talking now about the principles, but I think like, uh, and actually that is something I also mentioned in my, ar- my article in terms of the voluntary markets that you see big corporates doing it and starting getting the momentum but there's always the laggers and those who really don't want to clean up the mess they've made, the waste they've made, uh, they created. So uh, for those, you will need policies in place to, to set targets and, and also provide guidance, uh, not just say we have these targets, so work on them, but also provide some, some guidance on that. So um, this market-based approach together with a policy-based approach, I think it's, it would be the best uh, way to get there. Um, but yeah, I'm just speaking uh, out of my own um, knowledge and, and thought about the topic. Uh, okay, understood. Uh, well, Patricia, we should probably scoot along because there are other things on this list we want to talk about. Um, I suppose the next place to take this is I've seen quite a lot from Boris Johnson's office and even him personally. I think I saw some quotes of him talking about carbon removal, which uh, is exciting to see. Uh, world leaders talking about carbon removal. So seemingly there is some momentum uh, at the political level, at even the, the national stage in the UK with carbon removal. 
Is that true or is this just a Yanks bad impression? <laughs> no, yes. And it's great to hear Boris Johnson talking about scar removal, which is amazing and impressive. And it just shows how the UK is, is getting a, a leadership role in, in this, um, this race, uh, this positive race uh, to reach net zero. Uh, in the right uh, in the right way. Um, so basically, the the current news and since last year and this year have been getting some momentum is the the focus on putting 100 million pounds uh, in new funding for research and, and development of DAC. But it's not just a director capture; it's actually a few other technologies such as CCUS, for instance. But but it's great. So uh, out of those hundreds. Um, 31.5 million uh, is actually uh, funding for pure academic research, so for coalition of universities, um, and that's given by the Research and Innovation Council, the UKRI. And basically, they have a program that's looking for greenhouse gas removal demonstrators. And they could be around DAX, uh, they can be about enhanced terrestrial wetting, uh, weathering, BECs, and a few other solutions. So that's part of the, the budget. The other around 70 uh, million, um, it's um, from BAYS, the UK Department for Business, Energy, and Industrial Strategy. And it's, they also have a, an innovation program, which is focused on director capture and other greenhouse gas removal. So basically, that actually can come from DAX, from uh, 2CCUS, and a few other solutions, actually. But this is 100 million. It's great if you look at the, 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 the number, but to be honest, we need way more um, to solve for climate. 100 million will not do uh, in this space, but definitely it's a start. So uh, it's a good start. Um, so I'm happy to see this momentum. This is the budget for a year, uh, for one year. So hopefully that budget will increase over the next years and the Carbon World Center will support that uh, in any way we can. Actually, the Carbon Removal Center is a signatory uh, of the Coalition for Negative Emissions that was just signed this week. Uh, and it basically, it's a letter to, to the government uh, saying that we, alongside other organizations, uh, such as in the power sector, in the aerospace se sector, and a few others, uh, are here to help support the UK government lead on DAC and, and this carbon removal uh, sectors. So uh, we're here to support the government as well as other organizations. We want to, uh, if we can be the leader organization, um, leader nation, apologies for that, um, in this space. Uh, so, so it's great to see momentum coming from different sides. I'll be curious to see what happens as a result and in uh, years moving forward. I'm sure we'll hear of new projects, new names, things coming out of the woodwork will be good to see, I think. Uh, well, there's two more things on this list here, Patricia. What is happening um, with carbon engineering and pale blue dot? Yeah, so that's actually an exciting project that also shows the momentum in the UK for um, director capture. Um, so carbon engineering and pale blue, blue dot actually partner and are creating a project around uh, director capture. Uh, the site is still to be defined, but it might be in Scotland where there's a lot of uh, legacy on oil and gas infrastructure, as well as good uh, geologi geological formations for 
carbon dioxide storage, as we were just mentioning, the North Sea as well is very close by, so it might be there. So, so, so basically, as we know, the carbon engineering's uh, DAC technology is definitely commercially viable today, and this partnership between um, a DAC technology company and a UK development partner really shows um, that the next step towards establishing a, a UK DAC industry is, is coming in. And this project, if it's the Scotland one, they're still defining, as uh, I very much know, um, will be deployed, the DAC project will be deployed in 2026, which is something very interesting. If it's operational only in 2026, it shows how serious we are in taking these projects further. Uh, it's a long timeline until that is functioning. And these are the, the kind of the risks that's, that we need in the space. Um, you need assurance that there's going to be an off-taker for this carbon as a service, carbon removal as a service. Uh, and so, so I'm very excited about these projects. It's going to be one of many, I'm sure. Uh, and before 2026, <laughs> I'm sure we're going to have other projects and probably other competitors to to carbon engineering entering the, entering the UK and taking advantage of uh, the more and more um, uh, helpful policies that we're going to put into place in the government hmm. for carbon removal. Yeah, that's, that's uh, will be one to watch for sure. And how about this last one, which is fun? I've seen their name around quite a few times, but it sounds like there's news with Brewdog. Yes, so Brewdog is actually um, a brewing a brewer in the UK, which, by the way, it's a very good one. So just doing some free publicity out here. Uh, <laughs> and actually, uh, a few months ago, they come up with uh, their own carbon negative goals. So what they said they were in, is that they were inspired by Sir David Attenborough's talk on climate change. Um, and actually, a side comment please do watch uh, the latest documentary from David Attenborough on Netflix, uh, which is called A Life on a Planet, and show it to all of your friends and whoever you can. Uh, so it's his legacy message on, on climate and what sh we should be doing about it. So sorry about this derail. So going back to BrewDog, uh, they actually, after listening to David Attenborough, they decided to take a stance on climate when they understood that they are responsible as as much as anyone else for the emissions that we've put out there and eventually for climate change. So they reached out to Professor Mike Berners-Lee, uh, which is now their lead scientific advisor, and started creating uh, targets for carbon emissions reductions as well as carbon removal. So their goal now is to remove twice as much carbon from the air uh, each year as they emit. So if you now drink um, BrewDog's beer, you're actually helping the world get less carbon. <laughs> so this is also an understanding from them. It shows that they understand the net zero is a moment, as I mentioned before, and not an end goal. You, to get to 350 parts per million or beyond that, we really need to, to not stop at net zero. We need to do more. Uh, again, what we've emitted so far, it's too much to the atmosphere in terms of carbon dioxide um, uh, particles. So we really need to remove uh, already what we have out there. And just a, a side comment, uh, well, a continuous comment on the, this initiative 
BrewDog is actually focused on only nature-based solutions uh, for carbon offsetting, um, uh, which are carbon removal offsetting, which is good. Um, and they actually have purchased a, a bit over 2,000 acres of land uh, in the Scottish Islands, Highlands to do this. Uh, so applaud, I really applaud them for doing this. It's nature-based solutions, which is great. Again, we talked about the benefits out of that, um, but we need more and more momentum um, from corporates and others uh, to, to really solve for, for climate and go beyond net zero. But it's actually um, a good sign that uh, these voluntary markets exist. Uh, Brood Dog is just a start. I'm sure that if we talk in a year's time, we're going to have a number of other corporations focused on this, even if it's not a, a mandatory market on carbon removal. Oh, I'm, I'm, it seems very likely that that will be the case. And uh, in case you're listening, uh, Oxford people, not everyone listens to your industrial technological approach. Look at BrewDog here <laughs> taking a stand for land-based carbon removal. Just kidding. I don't want to actually have that fight. I'm sick of having it. <laughs> I must say, actually, that in the principles, there's a part where they actually mention that they have, well, not in these terms, that, but that they actually have nothing to, uh, nothing bad uh, against um, nature-based solutions, and they actually encourage it because of the co-benefits, but it's just in general, if we want to really reach the net zero goals um, and going beyond that, and that's what we need in the next net decades to come, we should be focused on investing in, in carbon uh, long permanent uh, uh, storage solutions. So again, oh. they're not the bad guys here. <laughs> oh, no, no, I don't. I'm just making a dumb <laughs> joke. And yeah, of course, we, we clearly need that as well. Um, Okay, I, I say I don't want to talk about it, and yet I dropped some comment that, of course, you have to respond to, Patricia. We'll never get out of here if I keep doing it. So <laughs> I'm just going to cut it there and uh, say that your article that you mentioned about um, uh, carbon markets and market-based mechanisms for funding carbon removal, I'll put that in the show notes, the link to Carbon Removal Center and your personal Twitter. Uh, is, there, is there any way people can get involved in the Carbon Removal Center or, or things you're looking for them to do? Uh, yeah, sure. Actually, before we created the Carbon Removal Center, we actually created the Carbon Removal Network, which is a group of people interested in working in the space of carbon removal. Uh, although the Carbon Removal Center is based in the UK, just because the co-founders are from there and we, we got together there and we did the workshops to define what the Carbon Removal Center would be, uh, was there. The network is actually international, so we have people from from the different sides of the, the, the planet uh, on that. And to be honest, the carbon removal, it's a market that's uh, universally doesn't have barriers on, in the sky to, do, to, to differentiate different um, emissions from different countries. So uh, we're actually definitely um, a global uh, network of people in the space. So please do sign up for our newsletter and we keep you posted on the projects we do. And whenever we have also work that's related to your area of expertise or you're happy to 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 reach out to you and uh, if you want join us but usually we do get togethers we did that before covid uh, now uh, it's more in the style of um, uh, webinars that we do so it's less mingling but as soon as this pandemic passes we're going to continue 
doing those get-togethers uh, and you definitely should join uh, starting in London because that's where we are but eventually in the future uh, in other places. Terrific. Links to all of those things are in the show notes. Thanks for being here, Patricia. Thank you very much, Ross. One quick thing. I think I called myself the lead strategist still, but I've had a change of title. I'm now the creative editor of Nori. I need to start getting the practice of saying that. Oh. Uh, yeah. I uh, have not had to do that before. And Congrats also, for the new position. Thanks. Lead strategist is, uh, was a bit open-ended and it was time to be rather more specific. So happy to do that. And hey, if you're listening, if you wouldn't mind doing me a small favor, open up that podcast app on your iPhone, go over to Carbon Removal Newsroom, write us a great review, give us five stars if you believe that we deserve it. It helps a lot, helps us get this content out to more people, and thank you so much for listening.